you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis. And we are continuing an ongoing exposition uh, through this first book of the Christian scriptures, the book of Genesis. And today uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. Genesis 6, verses 9 through 22. Let me invite you as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 6 and starting in verse 9, wherein Moses faithfully records. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. May God bless again today the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, as we stand before the sacred page today, we ask for illumination, we need light, we need understanding, or this, these words will simply fall to the ground because we, we cannot comprehend them apart from the help of the Spirit. And so open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our hearts, to receive thy word, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Again, we are continuing today this ongoing exposition, going uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through uh, the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the Genesis chapters 1 through 11, uh, and then we'll probably take a break and, and then come back to Genesis eventually. But we're focusing on this part of Genesis, which tells us basically uh, the story of the beginning, the primordial story. And there, there is found here in these opening chapters of Genesis so many things that are foundational. You really can't understand the Bible, the rest of the Bible, unless you understand these opening chapters of Genesis. They are so foundational. And what we've seen thus far is that God made the world in the space of six days and all very good. Then on the seventh day, He rested. And so He made us the crown of creation, man and woman made in His image, and they were placed within a beautiful garden. But in Genesis 3, we have the account we know as the fall. They trespassed against God, God's command. He told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet they did. And that's what sin is. God gives a command, and, and we refuse to obey, to conform ourselves to that command, and we even trespass against it. And this brought mankind and all creation with it into a, a downward spiral. That's why we call it the fall. Man isn't now what he once was. And there was a downward spiral that took place. And we saw last time in Genesis 6 how over several generations the wickedness had so increased and the depths of the degradation it had reached such a low point that the Lord looked upon it with something like disgust. Look at verse 5 of Genesis 6. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. At one point back in Genesis 1.31, He looked at the creation, the pre-fallen creation, and He said it was very good. Now He looks at it and sees that the wickedness of man was great. And notice the rest of verse 5. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what we see here is that after Genesis 3, man, mankind has a sin problem. We lack conformity to the commands of God. We actively break the commands of God. This will lead the prophet Jeremiah to write in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So wretched was the state of man that the Lord determined to wipe him from the face of the earth. And God would have been perfectly just to have done that very thing. He would have been perfectly just just no one could have complained if God had not at this point chosen completely to wipe all humanity from the face of the earth. And God declared this intention. If you look at verse 7 of Genesis 6, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And see, man and his fall brought down with him because he was the crown of creation and was made to have dominion over creation. When he fell, he, he dragged down with him all of creation. Paul can write in Romans 8 that the whole creation groans because of man's sin. And so if you look at Genesis 6-7, the Lord continues to say that He intended 
destruction, not just for mankind, but both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. And then it says at the end of verse 7, for it repenteth me that I have made them. God was grieved that he had even made mankind. And so this was, this was sort of the lowest point. But as we noted last week, if you look at verse 8, there's one of those great, I called it last week, one of the great adversative conjunction statements in Scripture. It says in verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord set His affections upon one man. And upon this one man would stand the hopes of the continuation of mankind that God at one point had determined to wipe completely off the face of the earth. Today, our passage continues this inspired account of the life and the ministry of Noah. And Moses, as he begins here to write about Noah, will stress especially that he was a just man, that he was a righteous man, that he was an upright man in God's sight. And although the Lord would indeed chasten the world through a cataclysmic flood, He would also commission Noah to build an ark in which a remnant of humanity would be preserved. And what is more, God would promise to make a covenant with Noah. God would not abandon man, even fallen man, even though the image of God was tarnished in him. God, in His mercy, would not abandon Man to his just deserts. For he had made man in his own image as a crown of creation. And God is beginning here a redemptive plan through which he would redeem even sinful men. And really it's going to take, we're in Genesis, it's going to take the whole course of the Scriptures till we come to Christ to see how this entire story will be played out uh, in real time in history. For today though, we're going to look at this description of the life and ministry of Noah as it begins to be told us here in Genesis 6. As we look at our passage, Genesis 6, verses 9 through 22, we can divide it into three parts. And so let's look at three parts of this passage. In the first part, we have a description that comes from the author of this book, who was Moses. And in this description, there is an account of who Noah was. He's described again as a just or righteous man. And in contrast, there's a description of a corrupt earth. And so that's the first part, verses 9 through 12. The second part of our passage is the longest part. It's verses 13 through 21. And this is the record of a speech that God makes to Noah. Starts in verse 13, and God said unto Noah. And so it's a speech. It, as we'll see, it's a prophetic speech. There, there are some commands within it, and there are some prophecies within it. And then finally, the third part of our passage will be just one verse. It's verse 22, and we could give it the heading, The Obedience of Noah. And so. Let's look at the three parts of our passage and let's just walk through it together. And let's start off by looking at the first part, Moses' description 
of righteous or just Noah and the corrupt earth in verses 9 through 12. And again, this part comes as a report from the inspired author, from Moses, as he was being guided by the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice it begins in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. And we've noted before that this phrase, these are the generations, is a stock phrase that's repeated over and again throughout the book of Genesis at various key turning points. You might remember, if you look back in Genesis 5, verse 1, that's the first time we saw it, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And there, there was a tracing of the line of Adam through uh, righteous Seth, and it led through ten generations to Noah. And now, once we get to Noah, we have the repetition of this little stock phrase, these are the generations now of Noah, whereas before it had been the generations of Adam. And this tells us, those of us who are reading this book, that something new now is being told to us. And it's now going to be a focus upon the life and the ministry of Noah. And so uh, we are told uh, then that this is going to be a foundational turning point in human history and the history of, of of the whole creation. And in verse 9, as this verse continues, there are three descriptions of Noah. First, we read in verse 9, Noah was a just man. Noah was a just man. That word just can also mean righteous. It's the root for the words justice and righteousness. It's the, the adjective here. He was a just or a righteous man. This tells us that Noah was a godly man in an ungodly generation. And this description of him will be a hallmark description of him throughout the scriptures, that he was just or righteous. In the book of, of, of Ezekiel, there are two places where Noah is listed alongside of two other great men of the Bible, Daniel and Job, as being especially known for their justice or their righteousness. In Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, the prophet Ezekiel said, and he was at this point he was prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. He was telling the, the people that Jerusalem was going to fall and that even if these three godly men, uh, it, it, even if Noah and Daniel and Job were within the city, the city would not be spared. Only they would be spared for their righteousness. So in Ezekiel 14, 14, we read, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. And likewise, in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 20, Ezekiel would write, Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. And so, uh, we, what we have here is a statement from a prophet saying that the standard of righteousness was Noah, Daniel, and Job. They were three of the great men of righteousness or justice in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we read uh, something of the same. 
In Hebrews 11, which we sometimes refer to as the great faith chapter of the Bible or the faith hall of fame, uh, we read in, in Hebrews 11 and verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. And so there's an inspired New Testament description of Noah as an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. When it says here in Genesis 6 and verse 9, Noah was a just man or a righteous man, we must, I think, read that in an evangelical manner. How does one become a righteous man in God's sight? How does one become a just man in God's sight? As the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.13, God is too holy to look upon iniquity. How can any sinful man, any fallen man, even if he is a believer, how can he stand in the presence of a holy God. He must be one who has been made righteous in God's sight by his faith in Christ. There were persons in the Old Testament who were Christians. We become Christians as we look back to the cross and as we see what, what God has done for us through Christ. But in the Old Testament, there were, there were men who looked forward anticipating what would be done upon the cross and through the resurrection of Christ? And Noah was one such, such person. He was a just man. He had been made uh, right with God through faith in Christ. As the Apostle Paul will put it in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Noah was a man who had peace with God because he trusted in Christ even before the incarnation of Christ, even before Christ in time went to the cross. He was a believer. He was a just man and a righteous man. Sometimes we think of Abraham uh, who will be described to us in Genesis 12 as the first of the Old Testament saints because it says in Genesis 15, 6 that of Abraham that he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. But Genesis 6 and verse 9 tells us that before Abraham, there was Noah. And Noah was a just man. Not only was he a righteous or a just man, but the apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Righteousness was his theme. He was a a justified man, a man justified by faith, and he was a preacher of righteousness. And so Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.5 that God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Second of three descriptions of Noah in verse 9, second half of verse 9, lots crammed in here to a little half verse. First was that Noah was a just man. The second of three things that said about him is that he was perfect 
in his generations. In my copy of, of the Bible, uh, in the Cambridge Authorized Version, it has in the notes there that an alternate for the word perfect is the word upright or upright. So he was upright in his generation. When, when it says here in the Authorized Version he was perfect in his generation, it does not mean that he was perfect as, as far as being completely sinless uh, or that he was without any moral fault. Noah was born after the fall and that meant that he inherited through ordinary generation a sin nature or original sin from Adam and Eve and from the line that came from them. The biblical word perfect, as the translators here indicate, can also mean upright. It can also mean mature or complete. This is the way the Lord Jesus Himself used this term when He spoke to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And He said, Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This word can also mean blameless. And we think about the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, who could describe what his life was like before he became a Christian, before he was converted on the Damascus Road. And he said in Philippians 3.6, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Does that mean that Paul had never sinned? Of course not. This is the same man who would describe himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 as the chief of sinners. What it does tell us is that Paul said that with respect to, in comparison to those of his generation, uh, he was blameless because he attempted, he sought to keep the law. He attempted to be upright. And what this description here uh, means for us when we look at Genesis 6-9, the second of these three descriptions, when it says that Noah was perfect in his generations, it simply means that uh, Noah was a man in his generation who was known for uprightness, for blamelessness. He was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to please the Lord. Thirdly then, in verse 9, he was a just man, he was perfect in his generations. It says, finally in verse 9, and Noah walked with God. And Noah walked with God. And when we hear that, we immediately think of the description of Enoch. Remember Enoch, the seventh in the line uh, from Adam through Seth. If we look back at verse 24 of Genesis 5, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And this language of walking with God, of course, is a metaphor for one who has a deep communion and fellowship and harmony with his Creator. This tells us that Noah was a spiritually-minded man. Yes, he was a man like Enoch who had remaining corruptions within him, but he had been sanctified. He'd been progressively sanctified by the grace of God. And so he walked with God. He was not a spiritual hypocrite. He was not one who claimed to have a relationship with God, but lived a private life of duplicity. No, he was one who intimately knew the Lord, was upright in his generation. We're told in verse 10, as we continue to have this story of the life and ministry of Noah, that in verse 10, he begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This was also told us in Genesis 5 and verse 32. 
And so here there's an anticipation of the fact that it's going to be through Noah and his wife and through his three sons and their wives that eight persons will be saved as a remnant from the destruction of the coming flood. In contrast to the godliness of Noah, we read in verses 11 and 12 about the wickedness of the world. In verse 11 it says, The earth also was corrupt before God. One commentator notes that the use of the term earth here is a metonym. That is, it stands not just for the physical material of the earth, but it stands for the inhabitants of the earth. And so, when, he's, when it says here in verse 11 that the earth also was corrupt, it means the inhabitants of the earth were corrupt before God, before a holy God. This underscores what we could call the totality of the earth's corruption that had come about through man's sin. And you'll notice also in verse 11, there's a special emphasis upon the fact that the earth was filled with violence. Some suggest this term can also mean lawlessness. But if we think about violence in particular, notice that this was the age again after the fall of man. This is, this is after the time when Cain had risen up and was the first to take the life of his neighbor, his own brother, unjustly, as Cain had, had slain his brother Abel. And there had been the spilling of blood. There had been murder for the first time. Violence. And then that had continued. And again, it had spiraled downward. Things had become worse and worse. You might remember back in Genesis 4, in verse 23, the description of Lamech from the line of Cain, who had slain a young man to his hurt, and then he had boasted of it, even written a song about it. And so, violence. There had been peace in the garden. Genesis 1 and 2, there had been only peace and harmony between men. But now, there's enmity, there's strife, there's violence. And indeed, uh, that will only continue among sinful men. The internet has exposed all of us with the click of a screen as to just how much violence and lawlessness there continues to be. How much violence and lawlessness fills the earth. In verse 12, the beginning of verse 12, we have another description of God looking upon the earth. Verse 12, and God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt just as He had looked and saw in verse 5, the wickedness of man was great. What a contrast again this is to the way uh, things had ended in Genesis 1 when he made the world and looked at it and saw that it was very good. Now he looks at it and sees that it's spoiled, it's corrupted. I suggested, I think last time, you know, what if you created some, some beautiful uh, artistic piece or you're a, a baker and you created a beautiful cake and someone came in in a moment and just wrecked it. And you looked upon it and saw that it was corrupted. It was destroyed. The thing that you had labored on. The thing that had been beautiful. And so this is what we are to imagine. How the Lord looks upon the earth. The beautiful world that He had made. And how it's been spoiled by sin. In verse 12, the last line there. Notice it says, For all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. 
This is an indictment of all mankind. This is a statement of what we would call the universality of sin. This is an Old Testament statement that will be paralleled by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23 when he will write, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's the Old Testament equivalent. Verse 12, For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. You know, sometimes people who aren't Christians, they think that, they think that well, Christians think they aren't sinners. And they think all of us are sinners. They completely misunderstand it, don't they? We who are Christians are the first people to stand in line and say, no, we are sinners. We have come short of God's glory. The only difference is we have found forgiveness and salvation in Christ. We also are we also are caught up in the corruptions. We have remaining corruptions within us even still, even after we become believers. We're still battling against this in our own hearts. The second part of our passage begins in verse 13. And this is God's speech to Noah. And you'll notice in verse 13 how it begins. And God said unto Noah, So Moses is here recording what God said or communicated to Noah. And within this this part, which is the biggest part of our passage, verses 13 uh, here uh, through verse 21, I think we can divide it into four subsections. And so let's walk through four subsections of this larger part of the passage, which is God's speech to Noah. The first of these subsections, I would, I would put verse 13. And in this first subsection, God promises destruction as a consequence for man's sin. So in some ways, it's a repetition of what was stated in verse 7. Uh, it's just now revealed unto a man, unto, unto just and righteous Noah. And so in verse 13 it says, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Alternate translation is, I will destroy them from the earth. And so uh, now we have uh, the Lord declaring as Adam and Eve learned in the garden, that sin has consequences. We have to pay the piper. We have to pay a toll for sin. Sin has consequences. Man, uh, sometimes in his blindness, will think, I can live as I want. I can do as I want. No one's stopping me. God's not watching. He's not intervening. There will be no consequences for me. And sometimes persons might go through their, this life without feeling and understanding the consequences of sin. Most likely they do, though, in this life. Most likely. Most often they do experience in this life. But even if they don't, or they're not aware of it in this life, they will experience it in the life to come. There are consequences for sin. So here's the Lord's declaration of this. I said... Uh, that in verse 12, the end of verse 12, maybe it had a parallel in Paul's statement in Romans 3.23. And we might say that in verse 13, there's a parallel in Paul's statement in Romans 
For the wages of sin is death. And so the Lord declares, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. It is mankind and his fallen actions that have brought about disruption in the creation. And so now the Lord justly and rightly vows, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth or from the earth. A fearsome echo is stated in this passage. It echoes in our minds. It echoes throughout history. The Lord's declaration in verse 13, I will destroy them. That is what sin deserves from an all-holy God. Sin before an all-holy God deserves and calls for its total destruction, its total eradication. In John's Gospel, in John 3.36, John describes the one who does not believe on Christ, and he says of that person, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Sin and sinners deserve the destruction of God because He is all holy. The second of these four subsections is in verses 14 through 16 of the second part. And in this section, God commissions Noah to build the ark. It begins in verse 14 with a command, an imperative from God in this speech to Noah, in which He says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. One commentator points out that the word here for ark in Hebrew, teba, is used in only one other place in the Old Testament outside of this account of Noah and the flood. It's used in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, to describe the basket in which the infant Moses was placed to save him from the wrath of Pharaoh and the destruction of Pharaoh. And that commentator says both arks were used to save the occupants from destruction by water. The historians are not sure what gopher wood means. Always wondered about that. What is gopher wood? It was wood from some kind of tree, and at least one commentator that I read suggested it was a cypress tree. It was, it was referring to cypress wood, but we don't know. It's one of those places where Scripture is sufficient, and we just don't know exactly what it was. You'll notice in verse 14 that in addition to the command to make the ark, uh, the Lord also gives kind of intricate instructions as to what the ark is to be like. It, it continues in verse 14. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark. Rooms shalt thou make. And there is a note there in my Bible at least that says that that word that is translated here as rooms is in Hebrew also a word that means nests. Like the, like the, the nest or the dwelling place of a bird. And so this ark was to be made and within it there were to be rooms or divided spaces or cabins or stalls or cubicles where the various occupants might stay. 
And as I read that, as, as the Lord was giving a command here that there would be rooms within the ark, I couldn't help but think of Christ's words in John 14, verses 1 and following. When He told His disciples to let not their hearts be troubled because He was going to depart for them, from them for a season. And He said to them in John 14, 2, In My Father's house are many mansions. Some modern translations rendered as many rooms. We could, I guess, say many nests. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The ark was a place with many rooms and spaces for those that would be the inhabitants of it. It was also waterproof with pitch within and without. As we read in verse 14, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Just as the ark or basket that had held Moses would be slathered with pitch. In verse 15, the, the specific dimensions of the ark are given to Noah. Look at verse 15. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. The scholars tell us that a cubit was defined in ancient times as the distance between a man's elbow and the end of his hand. And so again, this was the age before there were standard measurements. And, but this probably worked pretty well for the, the carpenters of that day. A cubit from the elbow to the hand, it, 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 we estimate it would be about 18 inches, about a foot and a half. And so if we look at the dimensions that are given, its length, the length of the arc would be 300 cubits or 450 feet. The breadth of it, 50 cubits or 75 feet. The height of it, 30 cubits or 45 feet. In verse 16 we read, A window shalt thou make in the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. Some translations render the word here that is translated as window, as roof or covering, suggesting that there was a covering and about it there was an opening of about one cubit all around underneath the covering for a way to provide light and ventilation to come into this structure that God had commanded. We also read in verse 16, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. And so, there was one door that was in this ark. Only one door mentioned. Later at the time of the flood, Moses will say in Genesis 7 and verse 16 that the Lord would shut him in to the ark. And many interpreters have obviously seen spiritual significance in the fact that there was only one door, only one entrance into the ark, especially in light of Christ's later declarations as in John 10.9 when He said, I am the, the gate or the door. Or when He said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me or through Me. And also in verse 16, it tells us uh, of the ark that it had three stories with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. 
One commentator notes that some of the old rabbis suggested the top space was for the human occupants, the middle for the animals, and the bottom for the refuse. But that's an extra-biblical idea. But it was a vast space, a vast space with, with three stories within it. Third of four subsections within this big second part of our passage this speech that God gives to Noah, the third part of it, we look at verse 17, in which God promises or prophesies the sending of the flood. Verse 17, Moses reports God's speech to Noah, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Here, for the first time, the Lord reveals the means by which He will bring about the destruction that He promised. He promised destruction in verse 7 of Genesis 6. He had reiterated that in verse 13. And now He reveals to Noah the means. And what will be the means of bringing about the consequences for sin. It will be the means of a flood. And God wants there to be no uh, misunderstanding. He's, he is responsible for this. This will not come about by happenstance. I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth. And He is bringing about the destruction of the very beings into whom He had breathed life. To destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life. He had animated the first man. Genesis 2.7. Forming him out of the dust. Now he will take back from men that which he has graciously given to them. As one commentator notes, the Hebrew word for flood, mabul, is used exclusively in the Bible to describe the flood which occurred in Noah's day. This was not an ordinary kind of flood, which we might know today. You live in central Virginia, you get notes about flash floods, right? It rains hard. We've got mountains and creeks, and the, the rain can come down and can, can flow uh, past your house and fill up a, a gully and block a road. But what happened in Noah's day was not an ordinary flood of the type we know of today. This was a a cataclysmic flood. In fact, in the New Testament, the Greek word for flood, which used of Noah's flood, is cataclysmos. It was a cataclysmic event. It involved the unleashing of what are described in Genesis 1-7 as the waters which are above the firmament. They are called in Genesis 8-2 the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven, as well as the rain of heaven. It was a cosmological event that we can't observe or see today that God unleashed. It was an unusual event. It wasn't an ordinary event. And by it, God determined in verse 17 that He would destroy all flesh. To destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. This will be an awesome display of God's power. It will be an awesome display of His sovereignty. 
And it will be an awesome display of his holiness and his justice. When some learn about the Bible's teaching that we call divine election, that God does not save everyone, you're not justified by life, but you're only justified by faith in Christ. When some who are outside the faith, especially hear that we believe that it actually matters how you live and what you believe, and that God just doesn't save everybody. You've been at some of those funerals where the preacher tries to preach the person into heaven. But they, they had no signs or evidences of it in life. Some will say, well, if you believe that, that people aren't saved, that people would go to hell, you, you, you're, you're saying God is unfair. God is unkind. The Bible tells us the truth. And the truth is that the world deserves total destruction. We deserve as sinners total destruction. The wonder of what the Scriptures teach is not that God chooses only to save some. The wonder is that He saves any. Why does He save any? And this narrative will inform us that there was a time when He chose to destroy everything and everyone except for eight souls. Eight persons. Noah and his wife. Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives. And he was completely righteous and just and fair to do it that way. The fourth subsection in this speech comes in verses 18 through 21. And here, God promises or prophesies a covenant with Noah. Look at verse 18. But with thee will I establish my covenant. You see, this is another one of the great adversative conjunction statements in the Bible. It's parallel, isn't it, to verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah deserved to be wiped away too. So did Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives. But the Lord says in this speech, but with thee will I establish my covenant. This is the first time in the Bible that the word covenant is explicitly used. It's a very important word. With Reformed Christians, we talk about covenant theology. We believe the Bible gives us a description of of a series of covenants. And the apex of those is the new covenant, the covenant of grace that comes through Christ. This is the first time the word is explicitly used. We think the concept is there. We, we, we talked about this before. The concept was there back in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. We sometimes call that the covenant of life or the covenant of works. When God placed man in the garden and in Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. That was a covenant, although the word wasn't explicitly used. That covenant was broken by man's sin. And the result was that indeed death came to men 
But now the Lord in His mercy promises that there will be another covenant. There will be a covenant that will be made with Noah. There will be the Noahic covenant. God is not done with fallen man. He is working out a plan of salvation. It will come through a series of covenants culminating in the covenant of grace, culminating in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Also in verse 18, we read that God will have this covenant not only again with Noah, but also with His sons, His wife, His, his sons' wives. And there is an invitation, and thou shalt come into the ark. Noah is instructed to make for himself provisions for his own deliverance and for the deliverance of his household. And it's not only a deliverance that will be for him, but as we continue to read, it's a deliverance that will also extend to the rest of creation that man's fall has has so poorly impacted. And so in verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee, They shall be male and female. So God is making a provision within the ark for also the preservation of the rest of the created order for the animals. And notice here the emphasis upon the fact that these animals that are going to be preserved are going to be two kinds, male and female. And so once again, we see the fundamental binary, not only of our human existence, but also of the natural world. Much to the chagrin of modern people who want to say there's something more. It's just male and female. And it's part of the created order. He expands upon this in verse 20. Speaking also of the fowl, the cattle, the creeping things, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of creeping things of the earth after its kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee. And notice the last line, verse 20. To keep them alive. The Lord God had given to Noah a life-saving mission, a life-affirming mission, a life-preserving mission. Very practical provision is also made for the ark as a life-saving instrument. As Noah is told in verse 21 to stock it with a supply of food both for human and animal inhabitants. Verse 21 And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Let's pause here for just a moment before we move on to the last part, just one verse in verse 23. Pause and reflect for a moment on the the commissioning, God's commissioning of Noah to build this ark. And notice that he wasn't just told, go make an ark, Full stop. No more instructions. God does not give to Noah merely a general plan. It gives him a very specific plan. Tells him the exact dimensions the ark is supposed to be. How many stories it's supposed to have. That it's to have rooms or nests within it. And so he gives him him very careful instructions. Later on in the Old Testament... God will give instructions for the people of God as to how they are to worship Him. Especially in the book of Leviticus. And we often talk about that 
as the beginning of what we call the regulative principle of worship, that we shouldn't just worship God any way we choose, but we should worship God in a way that is regulated by Scripture. Here, we could say what we see is the regulative pr principle of arc making. The, 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 the regulative principle of provisioning for deliverance. And what this tells to us, what it sort of uh, communicates to us subtly is the fact that, that God will not ask us to do things without also providing instructions as to how we are to do it. And so we are pointed here, even in these words, to the very use of Scripture as our guide for godly living. You are not meant to go out in this world and come up with a cafeteria type of spirituality. I'll take a little bit of this kind of spirituality, a little bit of this, a little Native American spirituality, a little New Age, a little Anglicanism, a little, little Pentecostalism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and I'll get my, put it all on my tray together. No. God has given us instructions. He's given us the Scriptures. He gave Noah a plan for building the ark. He gives us a plan for building our lives, for building our church, for ordering a worship service. It's there in His Word. Let's look finally at the third part. Look at verse 23. The final part is brief, but no less important. It tells us, verse 22, I said verse 23, verse 22. Thus, did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And this is a beautiful description of Noah and his character. The mark of Noah being a just and righteous and blameless man who walked with God is found in the fact that he obeyed the Lord and gave heed to all of his commands. I noted the description of Noah in the, the Faith Hall of Fame, the Faith chapter, Hebrews eleven seven. If you look at Hebrews 11, the very first verse defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As one commentator noted, the building of a ship must have seemed ludicrous to Noah's neighbors who had never seen a flood, certainly not the cataclysmic flood, unprecedented, extraordinary flood that God was going to bring about by opening the windows of heaven. In fact, if you look earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 2.5, it says in the pre-fallen world there wasn't even rain. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, Genesis 2.5. And Noah was told to build an ark, a huge ark. But this commentator says Noah was not swayed and he remained faithful to God. We too are called upon in this generation to acts of obedience and faithfulness to God through Christ that men in the world will not always understand or approve of and that they sometimes might even oppose. But will it be said of us, thus did he or she? As it was said of Noah, thus did Noah. He obeyed. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage.
Hopefully, with the Spirit's help, you've connected some of the dots for yourself. Let me just hasten to give a little more reflection on what we might learn from this passage. Noah was a just man. And God used this upright man in his day to save a remnant. Noah was the greatest man, the most godly man of his day. But he was still a fallen man. And now we can look back on it through hindsight with the help of the scriptures and we can see that there has, since the time of Noah, come one greater than Noah. Noah built an ark at the command of God to save the world from an unprecedented, though temporary destruction. But in the fullness of time, there came one greater than Noah. When he died on the cross, Luke tells us in Luke 23, 47, there was a centurion, a Roman centurion there, who when he saw what Christ had done on the cross, Luke says, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man or this was a just man. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And the Apostle Peter said, in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The One who is greater than Noah has raised up an ark in our day that saves men not only from temporary destruction but from eternal destruction and you enter into this ark which is Christ himself by only one door by faith in him and so let us believe and so let us be saved. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks for thy word and for this ancient account, and especially for having the privilege of hearing so much of thy speech unto Noah, thy servant. And so help us to apply this word today, this living word to our hearts and lives. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.